Well, he wasn't mad. That's just the way he dealt with things. It was a, a real rough place uh, years and years and years ago. It was 50 years ago. But uh, you just never know what's going to happen. So we've been walking through the book of First Peter. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things we had come up on in First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, I think. And we had also looked over at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, where it says that by means of the exceeding great and precious promises in God's word that we are to become partakers of the divine nature. Now, both of those have to do with feeding on God's word. And it gives us an idea of what's supposed to happen if we do. So we need to talk about, we need to think about, what does it mean to feed on God's Word? Does it mean, huh, if I go to church once a week and maybe read a few scriptures before I go to sleep every night, I'll be fine? <clears throat> or does it require something more, more deep in our relationship with God? <clears throat> Is there more to it than that? And what are the results supposed to be? Well, we just saw what one of the results is supposed to be, that by feeding on God's Word, if we're doing it right, then we should start seeing the divine nature manifested in our lives because it's going to change us from the inside out. We're not going to be the same people we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. Five years ago, six months ago. Depends on how heavy you're feeding. You see, one of the other results we see is over in Philippians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It says that, that the world is a dark place among whom you shine as lights and it says that we're holding forth the word of truth. So that one of the results is to be that we're to, to shine in the world as lights in a dark place, reflecting God's light. We're not the source of light, he is. And the other is that we're to be holding forth, offering, proffering the word of truth. And we need to talk about what that means. <clears throat> so our involvement with God's word has two aspects, intake and output. We need to talk about both of those. <clears throat> what we're to take into our lives and what effect it should have and what we're to give out to affect other people's lives. So let's talk about both of those ideas, input and output, intake and output. Intake is feeding on God's word. As we look through God's word, we find at least five ways that God says we can feed on his word. One is to hear it, obviously. Another is to read it. Another is to study it. Another is to memorize it. Some of you don't like that word. And the, the fifth is meditate on it, and this is not the way the world looks at meditation. We're going to talk about this. So let's talk about them in order. <clears throat> Hearing is always important. <clears throat> it, should be, it should lead to a change in behavior all by itself. Though we're warned in James chapter 1, verse 25, and that we studied this some time ago, not to be hearers only. It says, don't be forgetful hearers and not doers of the word. See, that's a possibility. I can hear it and say, yeah, yeah, that's cool, and just walk away and forget. God says, don't do that. So I don't want to be a hearer only. On the other hand, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, hearing says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So hearing is really important. That's how people get saved. No one's ever been saved without hearing the gospel or at least reading it or somehow taking it in and believing it, placing their faith in what God's offer is for eternal life. That's the way he has saved people from Adam on, 
by the way, in Wednesday nights, that's what we're studying, is starting in Genesis. And we saw that that's the way Adam was saved. With, by the next week or so, we're going to see that's the way Abraham was saved, and so forth. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the preaching of the cross be made of none effect. And it goes on to say, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing, to, to the unsaved that are just walking away from God. It's foolishness to them. But to us who believe and are being saved, it says it's the power of God. That ties in with Romans 1.16. He says, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is, and this is the only thing dis described this way in Scripture, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Okay, so this, this thing about hearing the gospel and believing the gospel, that is the only way God's ever saved anybody. Okay, so this thing about the preaching of the cross is important. We'll come back to that. Reading is commanded in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 19, the kings, Israel's kings, were commanded to not only read it, they were commanded to copy themselves out a, a, a personal copy of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, handwritten, and that they were to read in that copy every day of their lives. Why? Well, there's two effects. One, to keep their own hearts from becoming proud and arrogant and to bring peace and safety for the nation. I wish some of our leaders today was doing that. I mean, they don't have to copy it out by hand if they want, but it'd be really helpful if they were reading the word and believing it and doing what it says, okay? And that's what they were commanded to do. I'm not sure that any of them did, but that's what they were commanded to do. You can read it yourselves, Deuteronomy 17, 19. <clears throat> 1 Timothy in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul commanded that attention be given to the reading of Scripture. He was talking public reading for, for, for everybody to hear, for the edification of the hearers. Reading of Scripture was clearly commanded to be done on a regular basis. But we're also warned to take the time to think about and understand what we read. When Jesus was talking in Matthew chapter 24 and he was describing the coming tribulation, uh, when he mentioned the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, the writer, Matthew, put in a parenthetical remark, let the reader understand. Because it's easy to read and just pass over it and not take time to understand, not think about what is it saying. Okay, so reading leads into study. Taking a little bit more time. Spending the time and trouble to learn and to understand. Study is at least implied in the Bible. It does use the word study, but in Old English, the word study meant to give attention to, to, uh, to focus on something. It didn't necessarily mean grab a book and, you know, work out the problems on pages 21 and 22 before next class. We call that studying. When God used the word study, <clears throat> means to give effort and attention to something. But in the particular context where he used that word, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Remember we said we we're going to be holding forth the word of truth. Well, here he says we need to give attention to 
rightly dividing the word of truth, learning to understand it so we're not taking it out of context, we're not misinterpreting, that we really understand what it says so that when we hold forth the word of truth, we're not just bumping our gums, we're actually making sense. The result is that we are to become a workman. Each of us is to become a workman that does not need to be ashamed. That's a good goal all by itself. I'd like to be a workman that doesn't have to be ashamed. <clears throat> so steady is implied. Memorization. It's only, memori- it's only mentioned a few times in Scripture. One of them is very clear. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. That's memorization. Hiding God's word in my heart. With the result being that I'm not going to be sinning. Okay? Someone has famously said, either the word will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the word. Now that's fairly accurate. Each of us has an old sin nature that wants to run away and not think about God. How do I know? Well, I can look at it in Genesis chapter 3 and see what Adam and Eve did the moment their eyes were opened. When they heard God's voice, they fled. Okay, But I can look a couple of chapters later in Genesis 5 and see that Enoch walked with God. I want to be the guy that walks with God. I don't want to be fleeing from his presence. But we all have this built-in urge to not think about things that need to change, not face problems. So we look for diversions. We look for ways not to consider that kind of thing. We have activities and entertainments that are marketed precisely to feed that desire in humans. See, if I can keep people's mind off of their troubles, they're all happy, right? So we have television. We have In the Roman times, that's what the circuses were about. That's what the, the Colosseum was about, is to keep people's mind off of their, their oppressive government and so forth and not rebel. That's, what, that's why they provided this kind of entertainment, to keep people occupied so they wouldn't be thinking about troubles. <clears throat> But if I deliberately turn away from all these distractions and focus on God's word, then the word begins to change me inside and change my desire so that I'm less driven to escape the presence of God and more driven to want to walk with him. That's one of the changes that God's word brings. And as I memorize scripture, it allows me to feed on it even when I'm not reading. When something happens, God's word will speak to me in my heart because I already memorized that part. I know some of you are uncomfortable with that idea. We'll talk about it some more later. <clears throat> Meditation is the last means of taking in God's word. It has the deepest effect on the believer. Meditation, as it's used in Scripture, has nothing to do with the Eastern religions and so forth where they empty their minds and just allow any vagrant thought to take over. No, it has nothing to do with that. It means deliberately slowly, consciously thinking about God's word and considering the impact that it should have on my life. That's meditating on God's word. It's focusing God's word on my life. It means taking heed to my life according to God's word. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. So if I, allow God's, if I allow God's word to shine light on my life, it's going to change me. Verse 11 then goes on to say, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. But verse 9 is talking about meditation on God's word. 
Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. And Psalm 1, the whole psalm, is about meditating on God's word. It promises that the man who meditates therein day and night shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water, who brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and everything he does shall prosper. He's going to spiritually flourish. He's going to be unmovable. He's going to be strong. He's feeding on God's word. He's meditating on God's word. He's allowing God's word to soak in and do him some good. He's not just skating over it and saying, that was cool, I read five chapters. The guy was telling me the other night, says, you know, I used to read four or five chapters at a time. Now I'm lucky to get through six or seven verses because I'm studying, I'm reading every cross-reference, and I'm finding out what it actually says to me. Okay, you've crossed over from reading to studying then and meditating on God's Word. Psalm 1 indicates that at the very least I'm going to flourish spiritually. Now, all five of these activities concerning the Word of God are commanded in Scripture. <clears throat> I find it a good memory aid. Uh, I guess you could call it a memory aid or an object lesson, maybe, to consider the fact that I have five digits on each hand. If I want to get a good grip on something, I don't just use my pinky. Okay? If I grab hold of something with just my little finger, unless that something is very small and light or... It has a hole that I can shove my little finger through, like a teacup handle or something. Unless those are the cases, then I don't have a very good grip on it if all, if all I've got is my little finger. My little finger's not very strong, it's not very coordinated. That's not a good grip. <clears throat> if all I'm doing is hearing God's word, I'm not gonna have a good grip on God's word as a rule. There's exceptions. There's, there's people that hear a lot of God's word and it starts to change them in spite of the fact that that's the main thing they're doing. I knew a guy at work. <clears throat> he had the only job in the plant where it was okay for him to wear, uh, what do you call them, earbuds? They call them that today. I used to call them earphones, headphones. Um, it was okay for him to wear it because he was the tool room attendant. He was in a, an enclosed space. He couldn't get run over by a forklift that he didn't hear coming. He couldn't get hit by a crane and so forth. So he wore one, and he went and bought a full set of the Bible on tape. It was 84 45-minute cassettes. You remember cassettes? Those, those little plastic things, yeah, with the tape that goes around inside? Long time ago, right? I think he even had what was called a Walkman, okay, for some of you that are that old. Uh, but he put those tapes in there. There was 84 of these things, 45 minutes each. He listened to them all day, every day at work, which meant that every two weeks, he heard the entire Bible being read to him. Now, do you suppose that might have had an impact on his life? You betcha it did. See, and he didn't limit it to just hearing. See, if I do limit it to just hearing, and I refuse to do anything on my own, I'm not going to read, I'm not going to study, I'm not going to memorize, I'm not going to meditate, then I better hear a lot of it, because otherwise it's not going to have the desired impact on my life. Uh, <clears throat> But he didn't, he didn't leave it at that. When he'd get home, he'd study on his own. See, I, the more fingers I add to that grip, the better grip I've got on God's word. Using fingers again as a picture. Okay. When he would get home, he'd look these things up and read them, study them on his own, think, look up things, look up words, find out what they mean, things like that. So he, he transitioned from hearing to reading to studying real fast. He's a brand new believer, by the way. He'd been a believer for, I think, less than a, certainly less than a month when he got those tapes. And it started impacting his life right away. 
started changing him right away. The first thing that started happening is he started witnessing to his family. The first thing he did is he led his elderly mom to the Lord. This guy was in his late 50s. He led his mom to the Lord. She died like three months later. The next thing is he led all of his adult children to the Lord and all of their spouses to the Lord and started teaching them scripture. And this is all within six months of being born again. He was leading people to Christ and teaching them in deliberate Bible study. Okay. It was an astonishing change in his life. And it was entirely because of the impact of God's word. That's how God's word is supposed to affect us, say. This is how intake turns into output. So what is output? <clears throat> well, it's holding forth the word of truth. And that's what he was doing. <clears throat> what happened in that man's experience was the natural outworking of God's word changing a life. The result of a constant powerful intake of God's word soon became the powerful outflow of God's word into the lives of others. And the chain reaction will continue provided the people being fed gain the same passion for the word that their teacher has. That doesn't always happen. There's no guarantee that's going to happen. If a person decides that hearing it's good enough, then uh, and they're satisfied to just get spoon-fed you know, once a week or whatever, then that may be as far as they ever go. That's sad, but that's a fact. Some people respond that way. Okay, but all you can do is keep on feeding the flock. What we're all admonished to do in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, is to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and run with diligence the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. See, we're to take him as our example, and we're to lay aside the things that are keeping us from following him. And the word is what allows us to do that. Okay? If a person's willing to do that, then there's no limit to what God's power can do in a human life. If you're not willing, then yeah, there's a whole lot of limitations. Okay? So what other forms might output take? Well, number one, and this one's the, the minimum, is being a living example. See, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses, actually starts in verse 14, when it says, you're the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hid. No man lights a candle and puts it under a bushel or under a bed, but puts it on a candlestick where it gives light to everyone in the room. So let your light shine before men that they may, be, may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Not glorify you, glorify your Father. See, we're, that's, that's the minimum, that we're to be a living example. It's a learned behavior. It's part of what the Bible calls discipleship. It means that we're walking with Jesus, we're learning from him, and it's affecting those around us. Okay? In Galatians chapter 2, verse, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, it said that we're to shine as lights in a dark world. Okay? How would that happen? The way Jesus said. Okay. That's the minimum experience if we're going to walk with God. The minimum requirement. The next thing is preparing. Preparing to give an answer. And uh, oh, Let's see. 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always. Be ready. It means be prepared always to give an answer to any man that asketh thee a reason for the hope that is in you with hope, with fear and trembling. 
we're supposed to be ready all the time. Well, how do you do that? <laughs> you prepare in advance. You don't just automatically, accidentally be prepared. If you want to be able to give somebody a solid answer as to why you believe what you believe, then you need to do that studying ahead of time and do some memorization ahead of time and be able to say, well, you know, when I read John 3.16 where it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. When I realized that whosoever meant me, that's, see, that might be part of your testimony. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a different verse that really caught your attention. Maybe it's John 5.24 when I realized that Jesus said, I can have eternal life now. I don't have to wait till I die to find out if I made the team. See, it's not like joining some team where you have, you know, uh, trials and you find out that, no, you weren't good enough. You can sit in the bleachers and watch everybody else. No, it's not like that. I can have eternal life now. Maybe that's the thing that caught your attention. But if you don't know those verses and you can't share them with somebody else, then you can't be prepared. He says that we're to be prepared to share with other people. It might mean that I write it out. I think through, well... Okay, how did I get saved? What happened? And who was it that talked to me? And what caught my attention? What was it in their life that I saw that changed my thinking, that made me more open to the gospel? Write it down. Practice it. Talk to yourself in the mirror. You know, come up with a short version that I can in one minute tell somebody, well, this is why I came to be a believer. Or a little bit longer. Or a little even shorter. Can you do it in one sentence? Can you compress it down to, this is why I believe what I believe, and then just let them sit with it. If they don't want to hear any more, they got that. They got your testimony. I, I had a guy ask me some questions at work, and I could tell it was going to be a long conversation. I said, what are you doing right after work? He said, nothing. I said, I'll meet you in the parking lot after work. And he was slow to come out there. I thought he didn't want to talk. I don't think he did want to talk to me. But he got there, and we sat on the back bumper of my car for two and a half hours going through the gospel, starting in Genesis. And two weeks later, he was saved. Okay. You have to be prepared. And God tells us to be prepared, to give a spoken testimony, to explain our own account of our own journey from being lost to being saved and how it's accomplished by faith in God's promise and what changes it's made in our lives. The next thing would be learning to accurately quote Scripture. That requires memorization, even if it's just a few key verses. If you're having somebody else read the scripture and they've got your Bible, you can't necessarily read upside down real well. I'm not real good at it anyway. So if I've got those verses memorized, I can recite them holding my finger on that verse where they're reading it, and I make sure they actually got what it said. They didn't misread it. That's a good tool. The other thing is Jesus used that as a defense against temptation. Matthew chapter 4, when uh, Satan tempted Jesus, saying, you can do this. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When he, Then Satan tried to use scripture to tempt him, saying, throw yourself down, because God says, the angels will bear you up. And Jesus said, it's also written, thou shalt not put thy God to the test shall not tempt the Lord thy God. Okay. He answered with scripture, correctly quoted in every case. You shall worship the Lord God, him only shalt thou serve. He answered with scripture. But on a more practical, everyday 
uh, that's as practical as it comes, actually. But on a more mundane, let's say, uh, basis, uh, if I'm talking with somebody else who wants to argue against the gospel, God's word is a much more powerful tool or weapon, if you want to think of it that way, than any of my reasoning or my logic or my whatever. If I can quote God's word and say, well, this is what God says about this, it puts them in the position of having to argue against God instead of me, see? I'm out of the picture then. By the way, you know, if a robber points a gun at you and you say, well, I don't believe that's a gun, he's not going to say, well, yeah, it's a gun. Let me take it apart. I'll show you. No, he's going to pull the trigger. If somebody says, well, I don't believe that's God's word, go ahead and quote it anyway. See? Pull the trigger. It's God's word. It's going to have its effect. It doesn't matter whether they believe it's God's word or not. God says it's a sword. Slice them. I don't mean to hurt them with it. You know, a surgeon sliced at Judy. She was helping her. Okay? Well, you're behaving that way too. You're helping them with God's word. But don't you don't have to convince them that it's God's word. Use it. But if you're not prepared, and if you haven't memorized, and you can't quote it, then no, you're not going to be able to do that. <clears throat> Finally, this all sums up to holding forth the word of truth. <clears throat> That's what we're all supposed to be doing. Philippians 2.16 says, 15 and 16 says, we're to be lights shining in a dark world, and we'll be holding forth the word of truth. So we're offering... <clears throat> The written word as well as the living word. We're often the spoken word, reflecting the written word when we share with others. And we offer a glimpse of Jesus, the living word, when they see the reality of Christ worked out in our lives. And we offer the living word, Jesus, as a permanent gift of salvation when we share the gospel because he becomes the indwelling Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory, as it says in the scripture. Then they've got the... the the author of eternal life living in them permanently. Okay? That's what we're offering when we're holding forth the word of truth. All of this is holding forth the word of truth. Feeding the flock was specifically commanded to Peter in John chapter 21 when actually what was happening is Jesus was calling Peter away for the fourth time from commercial fishing. Nothing wrong with commercial fishing. I and another brother here in the church were both commercial fishermen years ago. There's nothing wrong with that. But Peter kept going back to him when Jesus had said, you're going to fish for men from now on. Peter kept going back to the boat. And I believe this was the fourth time uh, in John chapter 21, Jesus asked them, do you love me more than the fish? Lovest thou me more than these? Come on, get back, get back to the job I asked you to do. He says, if you love me at all, feed my flock, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. John chapter 21, verses, uh, I think, 14 through 17. <clears throat> 15 through 17. But see, along with the Great Commission, this, com this applies to all mature believers. We have a job to do. And while the main thrust of what we're supposed to be doing is offering the gospel to a lost world, the other part has to do with building up the body of Christ, especially the local assembly, particularly the local assembly. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 talks about the job of the elders and pastors and evangelists and so forth, equipping the saints, all the church, all the body of Christ, for the work of the ministry, because the work of the ministry is our job collectively, that that's what leadership is supposed to be training the whole body for, so that each of us is able 
minister of God, an evil servant of God. Okay. And that it goes on to say that the whole body builds itself up. It feeds itself. It, it becomes strong with, the, with what every part supplies. You can read that passage that every part is supposed to function and that we collectively get stronger and more effective in the assigned work. We encourage one another. We help one another with the burdens of life. And, and we work together to see the assembly become healthy and strong as well as reaching out to believers in other places through missions. There's, there's people that are giving their lives to take the gospel where it's never gone, and we've supported them, both financially, with letters, with phone calls, with uh, emails. You know, they didn't have those in Jesus' day, but we do. Uh, we encourage one another. All of this adds up to discipleship. Now, discipleship is not only required of each of us as a lifestyle, it's the commanded means by which to transmit the values and knowledge and skills necessary to continu continue the spiritual chain reaction that's supposed to be happening. It is the specific way that spiritual reproduction is to take place as part of the Great Commission. When Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, that first word, teach, was not the common word didasco, which means teach, just a simple word to teach. I wrote it down because it's not the same word. It's the word mathetuo. It is translated teach in this passage, but it's actually the verb form of the word disciple. Disciple usually is a person, but there's a verb form of it, mathetuo, which is the infinitive verb to disciple, but it can either mean to be a disciple or to make a disciple depending on the context in which it's used. And this one is to make disciples. He says, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. In fact, I think probably some of the newer translations actually say that. Okay, So the issue was discipleship. The means by which it was to be done was teaching. It says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Okay, So the, when, when I get over to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul's talking, and he does use the word teach, but he first says, The things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. When he used the word teach, it was the common Greek word didasko, teach. But the, the commit thou unto faithful men, these were the, the people that he was training to take over the work of, of feeding the flock. He was committing to them the ministry. They were the ones that were hopefully going to become elders and shepherds and so forth. <clears throat> so discipleship is exactly what was going on. That's the means by which discipleship happens. Okay. Now God's the one who decides specifically what he's going to have somebody do. In fact, if you read in, first, uh, in uh, John chapter 21 when Jesus was talking to Peter, Peter gets concerned about, well, what's he going to do? Talking about John. And Peter, John, <laughs> Jesus told him, you don't worry about him, you follow me. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty gentle way to put it, but he got told, you don't worry about him, you worry about you, you follow me. Okay, And that's what we have to do. I can't assign somebody else gifting. I can't assign somebody else, tell them what God wants them to do. God tells them what he wants them to do. Jesus is the head of the church. Not me, not any other man. That's why we have multiple leadership here in this church. 
is because if I go astray, then Rick or one of the other brothers is going to come and say, hey, holy chat, where are you going with this? They're going to straighten me out because I'm not the, the master here. Jesus is. Okay. And we don't assign gifts. God does. All of these are just examples of how God might choose to pour his word through his people to the world around him and to other believers as well. Is by no means an exhaustive list. There's far more ways that God can pour himself through his people to reach a lost world than there is for us to even take in his word. I can only think of five that the way we take in his word. Okay. But there's lots of ways for God to reach through us to other people. <clears throat> we are commanded to feed on his word. We're commanded to expect to see his divine nature developing in our lives. This isn't something to be taken lightly. It's not a hobby. It's not a pastime. This is the core of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing as believers. This is the normal Christian life. This is what the Word's about. This is what this relationship is about. Now, Jesus, something for you to think about. Jesus is, def is identified in several places in Scripture as being the Word of God. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and so forth. He's the creator. When I get down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But in Revelation chapter 19, when we see the Lord coming back as the conquering king, his title on him is the Word of God. It's spelled out for us. Now that leads me to think that there may be a pretty deep connection between how I treat God's written word, how I respond to God's written word, might tell me how I'm really responding to the living word, Jesus. Okay, you think about that. How am I responding to the Bible? How often am I wanting to read it? How much authority am I giving it in my life? This is far more than just an instruction manual for life, although we like to say that, and, and yeah, that's true, but that's so much, that's so understating what it really is. This is an ink and paper version of God's redemptive plan for man, who is Jesus. Jesus is plan A, and there is no plan B. And Jesus is identified as the Word of God. If I'm not taking that seriously, then I'm not taking him seriously. There are people over the centuries, there have been thousands of people that have died at the hands of other people trying to get the Bible to other people. People that were burned at the stake for translating it into English. Go back and read it. People that were murdered for having published God's Word. Uh, thousands of them. I, I could never finish the book, but there's a book out, it's an old book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was just too depressing for me to read it. I couldn't get through the thing. There are thousands and thousands of people that have died for the ex express purpose of trying to get the gospel to other people. And the missionaries that we support today, they're giving their lives, spending their lives, and some of them dying, to taking the gospel to other people. Uh, I can't remember their names all of a sudden. Uh, huh. Anyway, there's a couple that I knew that uh, were kidnapped in the Philippines because they were missionaries there, and the, the rebels held them for a long time. Uh, and when the military finally moved in and took over the rebel camp, he threw himself over her to protect her, and he was killed. Uh, she lived through it. 
Orrin Price, I think was his name. Orrin and Brenda, maybe Price. But you see, it was, it's been worth their lives to take the gospel where it hasn't gone before. It's worth their lives to take the message of Christ to a place where nobody had it. How much is it worth to us? Is it worth hearing God's word? Evidently it is. I mean, you guys are mostly here to hear it, evidently. So it's evidently at least worth that much. Is it worth reading? Is it worth studying it? Carefully examining it word by word, phrase by phrase, spending the time to actually learn to understand what God says? Is it worth taking the trouble to memorize at least some key verses so as to arm yourself against the battle you know is already upon us? The battle's here. We're not waiting for it to come. It's here. Is it worth taking the time alone to meditate on the Word and allow God to actually speak through His written Word and by His Holy Spirit so that He's free to work in your life and to set you free from the bondage of, bondage of besetting sins, fears, worries, distractions? Is it worth the time and focus and effort to do all this? I surely hope it is. That's what this relationship's all about. It's about getting to know Jesus, learning to walk with him, and being willing and able to serve as his hands, his feet, and his voice here among the human race. That's what this is about. Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we ask that you'd use your word and by your Holy Spirit, change our hearts, that we would desire to follow you and desire to walk in your steps, desire to be like you and to express the the divine nature in our own lives so that it shines as a light in a dark world and that other people can see that light and either be blessed by it and drawn to it because they're drawn to you or repulsed by it because they're still running from you. But either way, we would shine as the light of God. We ask that you'd allow your word to transform our lives and remold us in your image. Allow us to serve as your hands and your feet and your voice so that as long as we live, we can live for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.